0: Welcome to She's Wild, the podcast for women in land and development. I'm your host, Nancy Surak. I created this podcast as a way to collect conversations of women in the land and development industry. I've been a land broker on the west coast of Florida for nearly 20 years, and I love to empower other women and to tell them about this amazing industry. But I find often that there just aren't enough women being featured on big stages, whether that's at local conferences or nationally. So I set out to find these women myself that are killing it in my business across North America that are changing the communities that they live in every single day, whether they're building condos, multifamily, single family, office or industrial projects. I hope that you will find this space to be inspirational, motivating, and educational. From time to time, I will feature women who are not only in my business, but also career coaches and motivational speakers. Hello, welcome back to She's Wild, the podcast for women in land and development. Today's guest. Is Jessica Abramson, the Senior Development Manager at Styles Corporation. Jessica, I'm so excited to have you here today because I have yet to have a woman who specializes in ground up retail development. So welcome to the show. What Great. I'd love to Thank do you, what I'd love to do is just have you go ahead and give us an introduction and tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you're doing and a little bit more about your career.
1: Great. Thank you. Um, my name is Jessica Abramson. I live in Fort Lauderdale. I work at Stiles Corporation. I've been there for about 11 years now. And we are a fully integrated real estate company. We've been around for about 70 years. Um, family owned company, the third generation is leading the company now. And when I say we're fully integrated, we have a uh, several different departments the support the development department. We have in-house architects. They also do a lot of third-party work. They design all of our retail projects. They also design a lot of furniture stores and car dealerships for um, other ownership groups. We have an in-house contractor who um, they build a lot of our retail projects. And again, they also do a lot of third-party work for other developers. We also have an in-house leasing team that leases up all of our retail projects. I work closely with our brokers. And once a project is done, we have an in-house property management group who um, also, they're, they're very large. They do a lot of other, um, they have a lot of third-party clients. They manage a lot of properties here in South Florida. And then we also have an asset management team, um, and they also function as our financial services team. So for our ground-up projects, they line up all of our capital, they have relationships with our lenders, and they also handle um, the sales processes for when we are purchasing a property and for when we dispose of our completed properties.
0: Awesome, that's a great overview. So, um, I think when I first reached out to you, I told you I'd done a deal with Styles. I did a land deal. Oh, great! Back um, prior to the last uh, recession, Uh, I think it was in two thousand and seven, and it was a really, really great company to work with. Like, I really enjoyed the folks that I did that deal with. They were incredibly responsive and quick movers. You know, and so it, it. I was relatively early in my career. Because uh, I think I was like in two years, but they were just awesome to work with. Um, really good people. Great, so thank you. I, I um, I alluded to the fact that I haven't had a woman on the show that does retail. I'd love to know how exactly did you get into the role at Styles?
1: Um, well, if I go way back, I can. Uh, I think we do have this connection. I went to college at the University of New Orleans. I lived in New Orleans for a while. I left after Hurricane Katrina. And I moved to South Florida. And I at the time, I also really wanted to further my education. Um, I didn't want to when I left New Orleans, I was selling condos. Um, So when I came to Florida, I didn't know the market. I didn't know the area. So that wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do. I worked in hotels for some time. And I found a really Great mentor there, who took me under her wing. She knew that I was interested in real estate. She, um, we worked at condo hotels together, so she created a position for me to um, manage the condo rental program and um, manage various renovation projects in the two hotels that I worked at with her. I managed, you know, full room renovations for four hundred units restaurant renovations, lobby renovations. And I did that while I was in graduate school at Nova Southeastern University. I went there for um, my, I have a master's in science and real estate development. And then after I graduated in 2011, I started working at Styles. right after that. And I've been here for almost 11 years.
0: So you said, let's go way back. And you alluded to the fact that we do have a connection uh, Mm because I'm from New Orleans. Now I never attended the University of New Orleans, or as the locals call it, UNO, Yes. Um, or as I called it, and no offense to you because I don't think you're from there. You know, no, like I wasn't (laughs) going to stay and go to school at UNO, but I know it's a great university and has some great programs. Just, But for somebody like me, I was like, I got to get out of here. I didn't want to stay. So I'd love to know what took you to New Orleans originally?
1: Well, I was born there, but I grew up in upstate New York. My, um, both sides of my family have ties to New Orleans. Um, one side is from there for generations. And my connection to UNO was really because my grandfather, one of my grandfathers who passed away before I was born, but he was a chemistry professor there and dean of the graduate school and my grandmother was a um secretary in the political science department for over 20 years so i grew up knowing a lot about the school and i also grew up visiting new orleans every single year um and it really was uh, i just wanted to move down there and that was an easy connection that i had to get into the city and so that's why i chose to go there
0: that's awesome um and for folks who have never lived in New Orleans. I could tell you, it's the most unique place that I've ever lived. I grew up there, and and like you, my kids go back. You know, we go back every year, uh, and they both love it. They both are like, I want to live there, and I'm like, I don't want to live there. But I understand because it's a really unique culture. Food is great. The music's fantastic. It's a very celebratory type environment. Um, and and it's just a really wonderful place. I think to not only visit and vacation, but also if you have a chance to live there, outside of some safety issues, it's it's a really, really wonderful culture of of people who really do celebrate like every part of life. So yes. so you attended UNO, you sold some mm-hmm. condos uh, in New Orleans, and then Katrina hits. Tell me, what was that like? I know what it was like because I had family. Like, I didn't live through it directly, but I had Mm -hmm. family that relocated and stayed with me for a period of time. What was that like for a young woman to go through that?
1: It was definitely a unique experience and not anything that I ever expected. After I graduated college, I stayed there. And like I mentioned, I was working for a, a real estate agency, just selling condos for developers. I had a very specific goal that I had been working towards for many years, which was that I wanted to buy my first house before I turned 25 years old. I I spent a lot of time working on my credit score, saving money for a down payment, looking at properties. I found one. I fell in love with it. I bought it on June 10th, 2005. I spent the whole summer fixing it up. And then it was completely obliterated on in August um, 2005. It was a very unique experience in the sense that I basically only everything that I was left with, I could have fit into a Tupperware box, a Rubbermaid box. And um, my grandparents who lived over on the coast of Mississippi, their, their house was fine. And so... I moved in with them, my aunt and uncle moved in with them, their friends moved in with them, and really since I was so influenced by and around my grandparents all the time, they would always say, "Jessica, you'll be fine. You're you're 25 years old. You have your whole life ahead of you. What about, you know, so and so who lost all of her pictures for the last 70 years or, you know, our 8-year-old friend who lost everything that she owned." So there really wasn't an opportunity to feel sorry for myself about that. Um, but it was something that it was very um, impactful to me, because I, you know, I had to get my entire house demolished, I had to deal with the, you know, insurance companies, I basically didn't have a job because then nobody was, nobody really knew what to kind of do at the time at, at with real estate, everything was kind of ruined. So um, it was very, definitely a unique experience that I dealt with for years and years afterwards, because I also missed the city, you know, everybody was kind of mourning a loss of this great place. And, um, but yeah, so I ultimately, I never really thought I was going to live there forever. And I said, Well, you know, if you're going to (laughs) move, now's really the opportunity, you're out of work, you know, everything you own is in a box. (laughs) So you might as well, you know, try someplace else. And if you don't like it, you can always go back. And so I moved to South Florida and I've been here for almost 17 years, but I, I love New Orleans. I miss it a lot. I go back every chance I get. I was married there. Uh, I uh, was just there about a month ago visiting friends and family. I still have family there.
0: Yeah, so do I. Um, it's really interesting to hear that, you know, at 20, how old were you? 24, 25? 25, when 25 that yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So your whole life just basically crumbles around you. Everything you'd been planning for. Yes. What was the biggest lesson that you learned through that?
1: Well, I think one of the biggest lessons was, you know, I didn't really feel this way beforehand, but the biggest lesson was that material items really don't mean anything. Um, you know, you, you, you can lose them all and you can, you can certainly get everything back, which I did. Um, I think that that was the biggest thing. And then also just resilience and helping everybody. Everybody chipped in. They helped each other. Um, you know, I remember clearing out, you know, things at my grandparents' friend's house. I mean, my aunt and uncle who their home literally floated down the street. They had a a group of Amish people that came from Pennsylvania and helped them rebuild their house. And it was just a real sense of camaraderie and, and working together and helping other people out in their time of need.
0: Yeah. So you, so you leave New Orleans after that devastation and you move to Southeast Florida, which is known for getting hit with hurricanes. I know. Was did you not have any pause
1: with that? Um, no, not necessarily. no, not really. Um, you know, I thought I knew that what happened in New Orleans was really, <clears throat> you know, a very unique situation. It's not likely, <clears throat> excuse me, for that to happen again. And I do feel like hurricanes, they come far enough in advance that you can prepare and leave for them, which I had evacuated for for Katrina as well. And I really I love the Northeast, but I I didn't want to live in the cold. So um, I, you know, I came down here and I've been here ever since.
0: Okay. Um, that, that's interesting. Cause I'm like, that would have probably scared me, but I get it. You know, you were like, yeah, well, it's probably not going to happen again. You know, does lightning strike twice? Probably not sometimes. Um, so I noticed when I was reviewing for the show, kind of your background, one thing stuck out besides styles and your work there. And I just want to talk to you about this briefly. Uh, because I haven't had anybody on the show that's actually worked with this organization either. Um, and I'd love to know just kind of what this was like. Uh, but you spent some time working with Trump International Beach Resorts. And I think that was one of the projects you said you went in and you renovated, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Tell me, what was that like working for an organization like that, especially being out of New York? Was you know, was there any involvement with like the New York base or was it mostly like local in, in Southeast Florida?
1: Well, the hotel itself is owned by a family that's based here in South Florida. And the Trump name was licensed. Um, So you pay a certain fee um, to have the name there. And they did have certain branding standards. So while I day to day really didn't have too much um, involvement with that organization, other than um, two things, when I I managed the rental program, so I was responsible for doing all of the accounting for the unit owners. You know, the unit owners, each room was owned individually by a separate person, and they could join our rental program. And I administered the rental program. So each quarter, we would tally how often their room was rented, and then take out certain fees. And there was, um, you know, a licensing fee that went to the Trump organization that each unit owner paid. So I would you know, do a part of that accounting to allocate like how much would go to them. But the other aspect that I was involved with where they were involved is that we did um, a full room renovation for 412 rooms there start to finish. Like we almost pretty much almost like gutted the rooms, you know, did everything brand new. And the local hotel owners had hired a interior designer to design the package. And we had to get that approved by the brand um, to make sure that it was on brand. But other than that, you know, I didn't see any day-to-day involvement with them at all.
0: Got it. Okay. So how much um, do you see those sorts of elements in your current role, like the branding, those sorts of things? Is that a thing for you guys at Styles?
1: Well, it definitely is a big thing for our residential group. Um, we have. I, I work in the retail group, and we also have a residential group, and they handle ground-up development for apartment complexes, um, you know, multifamily rentals. And when they are developing their properties, they go through an extensive branding process. They might hire an outside branding firm, and we also have a, a, you know, a great marketing team here who gets involved with, with branding their properties. Also, our current headquarters, where we're located... Is a new office building that we built and it's branded as the main. Um, it's a large mixed use property. However, the retail projects um, don't have as much branding involved, other than we do name the shopping centers. But typically, you know, if I've worked a lot with say, you know, like Public, Starbucks, Chipotle, those big national brands, and really other than the decor of the facade, they're really dictating, you know, the layout and what everything looks like and the signage. And really, there's a lot of nation involved with that, like we might put together a sign package, but we'll allow them to have their, you know, national branded sign sign package. So with retail, I would say not as much as with other asset classes, you're
0: more coordinating with their branding. Needs. Correct.
1: Mm-hmm. Their their layout, you know, what what are their needs? I mean, Obviously, you know, if you go into a Starbucks or Deploy, they all kind of look very similar. So you're really kind of working with them to make sure that what you're building meets their prototype.
0: Okay. So when you think through your daily or weekly or monthly activities from a retail developer standpoint, take us through like kind of some of the things that you do on a regular basis. Like what, if you have a project that you're working on, what are the things that you're concentrating on and where you spend your time?
1: Um, well, it kind of runs the gamut because um, it, my role, we manage projects from as soon as we're getting the land under contract all, all the way until the project is completed. So, you know, for example, I have two Pretty large projects and each one of them I've been working on for over, they're both at the end, but I worked on each one of them for over five years. So depending on the stage of the project, um, but some of the regular things that we're always doing is, you know, we might perform our, our due diligence budget, put together a, a budget, an overall budget, a schedule, do all the due diligence activities. Then while we still have something under contract, we might be working on all of the entitlements. So depending on what that is, it could be easy. That could be, it could be very long. Um, you know, getting site plan approval, getting everything in for permits, handling the design, working with the architect, then negotiating the leases, um, and then managing the construction process.
0: And then once it once it's built, are you do you still remain involved, or does that transfer to like an asset management side of the business?
1: It does transfer to an asset manager and a property manager, but I still stay involved for certain aspects. Um, Even if the property is operating and we're negotiating a lease, I might look at the work letter, the delivery conditions. Um, You know, I still will, depending on the tenant and the time of their build out, I'll either manage it if it's during the upfront construction process, or we have a TI manager who we will transfer it over to after.
0: Okay, so when you think about all those different steps, right? Because I'm on the very very front end as a land broker uh, once once the deal closes from a land perspective, I'm out. you know, I'm gone, but I will tend to pay attention to what's happening, especially if it's something that I pass or that I'm close nearby. I love to see the progress of a deal that I still mm-hmm. land on. Um, when you think through all those parts, when and then you think about kind of the fact that you've been there for eleven years and you've reached this level of success in your career, what would you say are the top? skill sets that somebody needs if they were going to either shift into the development roles or start right out of school like what do you think they need to be able to do what are those skill sets
1: you know i think that you know a lot of people would say you know talk about like technical skills such as you know being able to analyze the financials but i really think it's it's two things it's really negotiating and influencing others you're working with a team and you need to influence them to Work on your project to get things done. You know, you might work with an architect who has 10 projects, and how do you make that person feel like yours is the most important or or to really cooperate with you on deadlines? So it's definitely working with a large team and trying to to influence them. And then the other one is really trying to um strategically think about problem solving, you're either trying to prevent a problem, or you're trying to solve a problem. Um, So really thinking outside of the box and trying to understand like, what can we do to make everybody satisfied or to get this done or to get past this hurdle, and then trying to get your team on board to, you know, to come up with a solution or to agree with what you think the solution might be. Because really, our job is just to to keep the project moving. And we might have, lo- we'll have a large team and whether that might be government officials who you know don't have the same priorities that you have, or like I said, consultants who are managing a huge workload or you know tenants who want a certain thing and you want a certain thing. And that's really what you got to try to do is to get everybody to keep everything moving.
0: Yeah, so what I heard there was you have to be really good at relationship building and follow up. Yes. Right. <laughs> Like those two things. And and I would say the same thing in my role, you know, to keep a deal going and making sure that people are making progress. Those are the two skill sets that I use all day, every day. You know, just making sure that people are doing what they're supposed to be doing and that there aren't any problems like lurking in the shadows. And mm-hmm. if there are like figuring out the solution, the right solution as fast as possible. Yes. So it doesn't get worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so I appreciate that you you shared that. When you think back of all the projects all the way back, that you've ever been involved with. What's been your favorite?
1: Um, you know, it's funny because in, in preparation for talking today, I listened to some of your other episodes and I, I forget who it was, but one of them said, is, is it always the first one and the last one? And I kind of agree with that. You know, w- one of my first ones was, you know, it was public Anchored Shopping Center in Hollywood, but it, w- it was the first one I ever did. And it had a myriad of different issues. And, you know, I was working around the clock, trying to learn everything about development and it really was a lot of fun we, I, we had a fun team and so I think that was one of my favorites and then one that I recently just finished up which I loved and it was very unique we in Palm Beach County we purchased about 39 acres um, from a woman who had owned she owned 72 acres we we purchased 38 of them from her and she the property was in this very very tiny, Municipality that had, I think, a population of 500. They never had any development. They've never had, had anything other than, you know, they have one gated community and two commercial properties, and that's it. And so it was really, really fun and really interesting working with both the seller and the, it's in a place called the Village Gulf, the village to get the project developed. I had a, a slew of entitlements because it was uh, zone agricultural so we changed the land use, the zoning, site plan, the village had no code for new commercial construction. So we wrote the code, you know, wrote the sign code, everything the entitlements took about oh I want to say a year and a half. Then of course it started construction right during COVID, which um, you know was interesting as well and then um you know, the property was unique because the the woman that we sought it from, she is um, she was getting older in age and her father had developed all of the land around and she'd owned this land since the 60s. And she basically had said, you know, I want to see it developed, you know, while I'm still here, while I can still be involved. So I, I know and trust that it's going to be, you know, a great project. And so we worked very closely with her as well. And it ended up being a really beautiful project at the end.
0: It's awesome. I would love to see pictures of that uh, because those are, to me, those are the best projects, right? Where you really can get your hands in. Like Mm -hmm. I hear you talking about the town had no code. I'm like, that is such a blessing, but so tricky too, because you have to make sure that you're writing Balanced code in making sure that you're doing all the right things so that you don't ruin it for yourself going forward or anyone else, right that mm-hmm. might be following you. And that goes both ways. like you have to take into consideration what's in the public's best interest and then what's in a potential developer's best interest
1: and and we worked a lot with you know meeting with the village and getting their feedback on what you know what they'd like to see. you know we took very um great care to make sure that the design was compatible with the rest of, of the surrounding areas. And, um, it it was really, really great working with that. That sounds like just
0: such a fun project. I could just imagine like when you really can really truly influence something from that perspective, like that to me is where the gold is in the business, right? Like that's, Mm -hmm. those, that's a deal that you will take with you forever. Cause you're like, we were like in the trenches, like making it happen. And then being really proud of what was constructed at the end of the day is cool too. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so when you think right now about what's happening kind of in the overall economy and the world and our business, uh, what are some of the bigger challenges that you're seeing that you guys, either you as an individual professional or your company is like facing right now and what are you guys doing to try to overcome one or two of those challenges?
1: Well, without a doubt, um, and you probably get this answer a lot, it's definitely rising construction costs and the supply chain and material availability. Um, You know, we will try to underwrite deals and, you know, put in the current construction costs. And it's just so much more than, you know, what it was, you know, last year or the year before. And um, that's definitely a challenge trying to make new projects pencil out. And I had um, multiple projects under construction during COVID, but the biggest challenge was once we started having material availability issues. And, um, you know, the, the biggest thing to do is to work with your team and try to make sure that they're ordering long lead items well in advance. Um, you know, if they're having a problem, come you know, let us know right away, working with our specific tenants to come up with alternatives. Um, You know, I mean, I can think of many different examples, but you know, some of them being, I had a large national tenant with, um, you know, terrazzo floor that's supposed to have a one eighth of an inch kind of separator in between the sections, and it wasn't available, and we had to have them approve a one that was a sixteenth of an inch, and it and it worked, and we got it in on time. Um, You know, switching out materials for pavers at the last minute. um, I had a, a tenant recently they're trying to open up by the end of the year their HVAC was delayed 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 and we said well you know if you take one without the humidifier it's in stock now and they said we'll take it for now just add add it later so we installed it last week and 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 that worked out but um I definitely find that that's been one of the biggest at least that challenge when you're in the field with things under construction but on the other side, I found that more than ever, the, the two teams are working together to try to find solutions. Um, you know, the tenants, construction teams, and you know, our understanding, they say, hey, we're running into this into all of our stores. And they've actually been great sources of information because if if you have a tenant and they're building 10 of the same stores, they know what's not available, they they know what to look for, and they're sharing information with us: like, hey, make sure you order your. Black concrete in advance because it's backed up or whatever the item may be.
0: Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought that up because I, you know, as a as a land broker, I've been doing this for like 18 years, and I will tell buyers, like especially when I'm representing uh, a seller, and I'll tell the buyers, like, hey, here are the issues. Here's what's going to come up, whether that's in contract negotiations or, um, hey, this is this municipality, they're going to want this, this, and this, and it always shocks me how many buyers like don't believe me. And I'm like, okay, I didn't just start this like six months ago. Like I know what I'm doing. I know <laughs> the issue. And and I just want to pe- for folks that I'm doing business with not to have the struggle. You know, I, I had a group out of your market area actually uh, put a deal under contract earlier this uh, year and or, or last year, I guess we've been working through it for months. And I said, hey, you know, my seller is in Europe. They're traveling for like, you know, the next four months in Europe and you're going to need this form. Uh, but there's this, this form has to be, uh, you're going to need it. The county's going to require it. Um, you know, I've seen it n- numerous times and it has to be uh, notarized. But in Europe, notary documentation is hard to come by sometimes. And this particular county requires um, what I call, I don't know if this is the correct legal term, wet signed. They want an original. Mm-hmm. And um, it's basically an authorization that says like, yes, we're giving this developer the, the authorization to go and negotiate on behalf of the property, like what they want to mm-hmm. do with it. And and I kept saying like, we're going to need this. We're going to need lead time. Like get it to me, get it to me, get it to me. And I kept asking for it, asking for it for like three months. And my emails would go unanswered. I would talk to them on the phone. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to get that to you. And literally I got a call one day, three months of asking if they go, hey, so that authorization letter, like we need that in three days. And I'm like, uh, yeah, Mike, Wyatt is somewhere in Spain. I'm not going (laughs) to talk to him for like another six days. Like we're out of luck. Um, And we figured it out. I figured out a solution, but I I kept saying like, okay, this is coming. Like just, Mm -hmm. and it's a little bitty thing. So I can only imagine multiplying that by like 500 times the significance of your HVAC system for a very large commercial building. (laughs) You know, like a few 50,000 square feet or hundred thousand square feet. Like, oh yeah, we don't have air conditioning. What are you going to do? Which is, it's crazy. And I know that that's happening across the market. Hopefully that will settle out here soon. Um, You know, but it's the experience helps. So when your clients or your tenants share those things, it just makes you guys better because you Mm -hmm. know what other questions to ask. So glad that you shared that. Um, I love to wrap up every interview with three fascinating questions. Um, And I sort of alluded to this earlier, but I'm going to ask it, in a little bit of a different way okay if a young woman particularly a young woman but maybe a young guy somebody relatively young in their career were to call you and say I really want to get into the development world what's a piece of advice you could share with me to help me in that journey what would you tell them
1: well, I I I do mentor a lot of students through the NSU real estate program, and um, whether you're a student or just a young person getting into the business, I always tell them milk the student card as much as you can. Even if just say, "Hey, I'm new to the business," call people you want to talk to. Almost anybody will talk to you for a little while, or have a phone conversation, or talk to you at a networking event. Um, because once once you get, you know many years into the business, it's a lot harder to, to use that car. So use that as long as you can. Attend every networking event possible. Introduce yourself. Make those connections. And then as you're doing that, I always tell them, learn about different career paths. I mean, when you say you want to go into real estate and even development, that's leasing, brokerage, development, asset management. And not only that, but there's multifamily, there's retail, there's industrial. Like There's a myriad of things That you can do in the real estate world. So start learning about those different things as early as possible. And then you can narrow down what it is you want to do. And a lot of times you narrow down what you want to do by figuring out what you don't want to do. So it's kind of, you know, talk to as many people as you can as possible early on in your career.
0: That's fantastic advice. I'm a huge proponent of that. I tell folks all the time, do not be afraid to pick up the phone or to reach out to someone on on the you know linkedin um chances are they're going to give you some time and if they don't that's just something to kind of like just put in your memory bank because one day you'll be on the receiving end of that outreach so remember who helped you and you know just be that person when you have an opportunity to so pay forward later
1: Yeah. I mean, even to this day, um, you know, two recent big projects that I had, they each had other shopping centers within a mile under construction. So I would call those other developers and I would say like, Hey, how's it going for you? What are you experiencing in this municipality? You know, and kind of of trade notes because people, you know, if you're willing to share information also, you know, people want to know these things. And sometimes it's hard to find out that information.
0: Yeah. So where's, where would you and this might be specific to your market, but where have you found the best networking opportunities?
1: Um, me, I'm very involved with ULI. Um, obviously, I think that is kind of one of the the premier. I've been involved with them in different capacities over the years. Also, you know, being in the retail world, I attend a lot of ICSE events. Also,
0: okay, thank you for that. Um, so, I always like to also ask: Is there a book or a podcast that you've listened to at any point in your career that you have found to be exceptionally helpful or inspirational in your career development?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. I I definitely listen to a lot of podcasts and I'm a very avid reader. Um, I will say in preparing for today, I listened to several episodes of your podcast, which I think were excellent. I really enjoyed all of them. I also really enjoy listening to the Fort podcast, which is um, a guy named Chris Powers. He's out of Dallas Fort Worth. He has a, you know, a company called Fort Capital, and he interviews in depth his episodes are you know, between one and two hours long of um, you know, people in all different aspects of the real estate industry. And, you know, as far as books, I, you know, I including fiction, I try to read about, I probably read about 30 books a year. Um, and I've recently been enjoying um either biographies and autobiographies or um, like fiction-like stories of of real developments. Um, Some of my favorites that I read this year were... I've really kind of been on a kick about books about developments in New York City, which has been great. Um, I read The Risk Game by Francis Greenberger. He has founded Time Equities. He's kind of like... They call him like the co-op king. He kind of like started that co-op process in New York City. And one of my favorites was written by a Vanity Fair reporter called Liar's Ball. And it's the it's the story of the GM building in New York City, which is like a huge, well-known office building, which, you know, a story of the development. And it changed hands several different times with very well-known New York developers. And I'm currently reading one called The Kings of New York. Um, and... One of the things I really like about those is that they read like novels, but they're about real people and real projects that actually happen. So, you know, I'll be reading the book and then I'll be looking up like, what's this building? What's the history of this building? Or, or what's the story about this developer? And it's, it's really educational and entertaining at the same time.
0: Um, That's awesome. I have not heard of any of those. So I'm definitely going to go put them on my reading list because I am fascinated by that sort of story, right? Like, what made you do that? Why did you make this decision? And and really looking back, like, especially up in New York, I mean, these buildings are so, some of them are so old. Mm -hmm. And just the vision that folks had to like either locate something in a specific location or build it a certain way is just, for me, it's just really mind-blowing.
1: Yeah. And also the, the, tolerance for risk that you know some of these people have is just my mind-boggling to me I mean it's very it really takes I think a lot of guts to pull some of those projects off
0: well it's funny that you say that because a lot of folks um ask me particularly why I never got into the development now because I'm fascinated by it I love it and my husband's a civil engineer and so we're both you know really in the business and we have all these contacts and we have all this knowledge. And I'm like, I don't have the risk. Tolerance. I know. So what I tell people, I'm like, I can pitch great ideas. And I do that when I have a piece of property, I'll call people like the sales folks and I'll be like, this needs to go here. Here's why this is what should happen. Um, but for me personally to take on the, it's such a huge risk. And I'm like, Oh mm-hmm. no, being a broker is risky enough. Uh, but I, I really nod. And clap for people who do it because that's what makes our our living environment, you know? And mm-hmm. like if those folks weren't willing to take risk, whether that's in New York, Fort Lauderdale, Tampa, you know, Boise, Idaho, like we wouldn't have like awesome places to live, work, and play at the end of the day. So I, I applaud them. I just can't be one of them. Um, and finally, I always like to say, where should folks uh, follow you to keep up with you? Are you active on LinkedIn? Do you have Um, any other places that you'd like to share from a social media standpoint, if folks want to just say like, follow what you're doing, what you're working on.
1: Yes, I'm, I'm active on LinkedIn. You can find me by searching my name, Jessica Abramson. And I also really enjoy, um, the real estate group on Twitter. They're very active, you know, group of real estate developers. And I am active there. That one is at J-E-J-O-L-Y 619. Um, and th- those are the main two that I use. My, my others m- mostly are just personal.
0: Well, I'm glad that you brought up Twitter. So thank you for sharing that because I've been following a couple strings on Twitter. I don't think that's one group that I'm necessarily following. So I'll have to like jump in. But I find some of them very, very interesting. And and then there's someone in your space actually out of Texas in the retail space, not development. I think he's on the leasing side. I forget what his handle is. I'll have to look it up so I can put it in the, in the show notes. And he's very entertaining and mm-hmm. he's completely anonymous, whoever this guy is, but he's got quite a great following, you know, and people will, he'll throw questions out or say like, I've encountered this and Folks like legitimate folks in the business who are not afraid to hide behind their real name, like give comments. And I've jumped in a few times and I'm like, I don't think that's right. You yeah. <laughs> know, or I'll say like 100%, like I've seen this a thousand times in my business. Um, but I, for such a long time, had kind of gotten off of Twitter. Mm-hmm. And then, and then I found these groups and I'm like, wow, there's like, there's, there's such great information available. So I'll make sure that I tag that and so that folks can go check it out. So thank you for bringing that up. Jessica, it was such a pleasure getting to know you better. I really appreciate the fact that you spent time here today to bring us through different parts of your life and your career and tell us all about styles. It it was a pleasure. Uh, It's my goal and my quest to bring women, real women who are in the business, like making things happen to the show to share their experience and to collect these stories. And I really appreciate you being here today.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Nancy. It was a pleasure. All right. Take care. See you soon. Thanks. Bye.
0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of She's Wild, the podcast for women in land and development. If you enjoyed today's show, please go out and rate us so that we can be found by other women in our industry. And if you know women who are working in land and development, please share this podcast with them. And if you know a total rock star woman, badass chick who is killing it in land and development anywhere in North America, I want to know who she is. Please reach out to me so that I can
1: feature her on an upcoming episode.